Well, happy Sunday. And it's after Thanksgiving, so I can finally say Merry Christmas without offending everybody. But I like to uh, celebrate it all year, of course. Uh, and one of the things I like to celebrate is the gifts, right? Amen. I know how it is. I know. I know it's a holiday that that's the birth of our Lord Jesus and everything else. But I, I can't help but admit I love Christmas gifts. And I love giving gifts. You know, there's something about giving gifts and, and the people open it, they see the joy of it and, and whatever it is you've given them. And, and, uh, but I have to admit, I like receiving them too. And, and the question I, I want to begin with and, and the challenge to us today is, is why do we give them? Now, I'm not complaining, <laughs> obviously, it's, but it's better to live an examined life. It's better to understand why we do things rather than just blindly continuing to do them. You've heard the story of the Christmas ham, the, the secret recipe passed down through a family generation after generation where four generations of the women are in the house on one blessed holiday and they're putting the Christmas ham into the oven and before doing so, the youngest cuts the end off of the ham and sets it in the pan and puts it in the oven. And after putting it in the oven, she began to think about it, examining it and says, you know, Mom, why do we cut the end off the ham and put it into the oven? And she goes, you know, i got to be honest, I don't know. It's just always how I've done it. Let's, let's go ask Grandma. So we go and ask Grandma, Grandma, why do we cut the end off the ham and put it into the oven uh, when we do that? That's your recipe. We do it the same way in the spices and all that. But, but you know why that is? And she goes, no. She's like, we better go ask Great Grandma. So they go and they ask great-grandma, great-grandma, why is it that you cut the, the end off the ham before putting it in the oven? She looks at them a little surprised, and she goes, well, I don't know about you, but I had a really small oven. And so we give gifts at Christmas, right? And why do we give gifts at Christmas? Is this something that's helpful to the holiday, helpful for us to understand the birth of our Lord Jesus? Is it something that God-fearing Christians ought to do? Because we all know how too many gifts and everything can kind of overshadow the holiday. I, I don't know if any of you have had the experience of your children having too much Christmas. Where they get to such a point and there's so much going on, so much excitement that they're just cranky and mean. And, you know, I, I want to think they don't get it from their father. So I have to think maybe it's just a little over-celebration. And, and maybe we've not emphasized enough the meaning of the holiday. Would we be better off fasting? You know, simplifying our lives for a time, abstaining from such luxurious observances, or shall we go ahead and give gifts with renewed understanding of why? Well, in today's text in Luke chapter 1, we're going to take a look at some of the beginning of the Christmas story. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a word appear in the passage we're going to examine. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And this word occurs twice. It occurs once as a verb form and another as a noun form. And it is translated as favored or favor. And the word literally means gift. And where it's used elsewhere in the New Testament is most often translated as grace. 
And that means that this is not a reward in keeping with the terms of a deal that we've made with God when it refers to Jesus as a gift. It does not mean that he is the wage that is earned by our proper behavior or even our repentance for that matter. It is the word gift, which means it is given from one who has to one who has not. And one who has it to give and the other who has not what can purchase it. And we're going to look at the text and we'll see this word displayed in the text for us and it'll give us opportunity then to really understand and explore what this means. So in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, up to this point, Luke has accounted the fact that he's retelling the details of Jesus after careful inspection of these things, careful research uh, with the eyewitnesses. He is introducing his gospel. And his gospel begins with an announcement made to Zechariah, who was a priest, that he was going to have a particular son and name him John. Well, of course, that was John the Baptist. But then we get here to verse 26, and there's another announcement made. Here's what it says. In the sixth month, so this would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that was foretold at the beginning of the chapter. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. An angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your word. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for this text. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us understanding of the importance of what is said here and the application of it to our very lives. We thank you, Lord, for presenting this to us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have a profound meeting an exciting scene, certainly. Anytime someone has occasioned the visit of an angel, it should bear us some interest. Angels show up a few times in the Bible, and when they do, it's always something critically important. So it's good for us to see and to examine what we have here today. And I want to cover this simply by going through the, the three main actors in the scene here, one being Gabriel, one being Mary, the other being Jesus, who is the topic of what is going on here. And then we're going to look at a fourth, and we're going to look at ourselves. And we're going to examine what does this then mean to me? 
How ought I to understand this? It's not just a story about something that happened to someone else, but as a story that is still continuing to happen even to us today. So first of all, who's this Gabriel? Well, Gabriel is traditionally called an archangel. He is the one who interpreted Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 8. He gave Daniel the prophecy of 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. He announced the birth of John the Baptist earlier in Luke chapter 1. And here in Luke uh, chapter 1, he announces the birth of Jesus. And in the second temple Jewish literature, they have kind of a more developed idea of what angels are and what they do and everything. And that's where he is assigned the title of archangel along with, with six others that are mentioned in some of the writings. But I think what's most important is what he was doing recently. As we look earlier in the chapter here, we see this uh, come to be. There appeared to Zechariah in the temple as he goes in to make the offering, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so he shows up here and he announces to Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child and are going to call him John. He says in verse 13, you shall call him John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So you notice when, when Gabriel shows up here in the altar, Zechariah, it says in verse 12, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And this is often a response when an angel shows up. And we don't have described in detail what they look like, but they're, they sometimes show up and they're obviously an angel. They're obviously not a human being. Now, there are other times when they appear like they might just look like a human being and people don't really notice, but here... Clearly, this is noticeable. He is afraid of this. And the first thing the, that Gabriel has to say is, do not be afraid. And then he announces John. And then Zechariah does something really interesting in verse 18. He says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel then, and I'll paraphrase here, he says, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. I was sent to speak to you. That's how you're going to know. And so he tells Zechariah, now you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born because you might say other foolish things. And so he actually gives uh, Zechariah a rebuke here. He throws around a little bit of the power that God has granted to him to go and accomplish his mission. So we look at him coming to uh, now Mary in the sixth month. And this is uh, explained in verse 36 that it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so Mary goes and visits Elizabeth and she's there for the birth of John. Now where did he come? He came to Nazareth of Galilee. That's in the northern part of Israel. And at the time it was the back country. It was a small town. It was mostly agricultural in its commerce it wasn't on the sea of galilee but it was not too far from it so this is something that's beyond the suburbs it's out there in the sticks it's a small town and a small town full of poor people as we'll see but here he shows up and mary is troubled at his saying 
And Gabriel assures her, do not be afraid, for you found favor with God. What he essentially comes and announces is the fulfillment of the covenant promises. As he says here, um, that, that he will be great, be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David, the ultimate fulfillment of it, that there will be one to sit on his throne forever. It is also the fulfillment of things promised to Israel, that is Jacob, where he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he comes announcing Jesus that Jesus is going to fundamentally change what's going on and he's going to bring to fulfillment things which god has spoken of ever since calling israel and indeed as we'll see later actually even before that and so his visions that he gave to daniel and this this announcement that he makes with mary and the announcement that he made to zechariah all these things are related in this way that there is a time when there will be an ending of empires and there will be a new kingdom on earth led by this son of the most high led by this son of god and so his announcement is this turning point in world history a significant play in God's plan to restore, renew the heavens and the earth, to roll back the work of Satan and the sins of man. And this is news that no human message has ever surpassed. When news has come about war, when news has come about peace, when news has come about radical changes or disasters or wonderful things that have happened in the earth, none of them have compared to this simple account of what Gabriel tells Mary. It's equaled only by the news of his return, whom the Lord Jesus himself told us about. So Gabriel brings us to Mary. And who is Mary? Well, Mary, as we see in verse 26, is of Nazareth. And she is likely at this time because she is betrothed to a man. That means she is promised to be married. And in their day, the betrothal, which we would call the engagement, was actually legally binding as marriage. And it usually happened with uh, young ladies when they were teenagers. So she's likely a young teenager. And we can tell that she is poor. And you say, well, that's not very nice to say about her. How do you know she's poor? Well, in the next chapter, in Luke 2, 24, as they go in obedience to the law that God had given them to offer a sacrifice for the child, they give the, a pair of turtle doves in place of the other sacrifice, which was to be a lamb. In other words, God made this law, whenever you have a child, you bring a lamb, you sacrifice him to the Lord. Unless you can't afford a lamb, then you may bring a pair of turtle doves. So she was from Nazareth, which, like we said, was back country. From some of the references to it in the Gospels, it's pretty clear that people didn't have much of a respect for Nazareth. And indeed, when we research the evidence and the, and the history here, we find, yeah, people didn't have much of a respect for Nazareth. And one of the reasons was, to the Jews, Nazareth was kind of unclean because that's one of those areas that had been settled partially by Gentiles when the Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern kingdom. 
So it was Gentile territory, and Gentiles and Jews were living there together, and the Jews who didn't live there kind of thought, ah, you live among those unclean Gentiles, you're just all unclean. So she embraces this, this great assignment, and it comes with great difficulty. Look in verse 35, what it says here. In, in chapter 2, verse 35, is they meet a man at the temple, he prophesies over them, and he says this to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, that this going forward, you have this baby now, he's 40 days old, being presented at the temple and everything, and, but there's going to come a time that this is going to be very difficult for Mary. Indeed it is. We know that there were rumors about the parentage of Jesus, that there was a suggestion that, you know, look, people can do math, right? And they could tell, yeah, Mary's a little too far along for them having just been married, and, you know, gee, they, they didn't go about this right, or there's someone else involved, and, and those things we see in the Gospels. And that would be a difficult thing for a woman in that age to be growing up with, raising a child under those terms of people being suspicious about his parentage. But the hardest thing of all would be as she stood near the end of the Gospel of John at the cross, watching this child that she'd given birth to die, and being commended into the care of one of his friends. So this was something that she took on and when she takes it on, what we see in her is we see a response to Gabriel's message in chapter 1, verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And this word for servant here is a very strong word. It's bond servant. It's one who's obligated to serve. It's not a volunteer. She says, Look, I'm the bondservant of the Lord. And let it be to me according to your word. Now she also contains, as we read through the chapter and we look at verses 46 to 56, what many people call the Magnificat or Mary's song that she has here. She has a great deal of theological knowledge. And she is devoted to the Lord. And we see that revealed as she continues to travel with Jesus throughout his ministry, and she's found praying with the disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. She's a faithful, believing person of God. And she humbly embraces these things given to her. So her question in Luke 134 is not a question like Zechariah asked. Zechariah asked, how, how will I know this? <laughs> Gabriel's like, because I am an angel standing in the presence of God, and I told you. That's how you know this. She asks a question. She goes, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? She's not concerned about if it will happen. She's concerned about how. And he answers her question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, and this is an interesting word, will overshadow you. And this word for overshadowing is very interesting because in the Old Testament it has some implications of being the presence of God. This is used in the book of Exodus when they first dedicate the, the tabernacle and the presence of God fills it as with a cloud and even spills out of it. It's used to describe that 
that presence, that mist, that cloud that was there. It's also used in the transfiguration as Jesus is transformed before their eyes on the mountaintop and he is found in the presence of Moses and Elijah and they, they behold his glorious form that he had with the Father before he came. And it says that a, a cloud overshadowed them as Jesus was speaking. It speaks often of the presence of God in the Psalms, and it's a word that is very weighty in its meaning. The Holy Spirit, Mary, will overshadow you. And that's going to be the conception of Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute. It's not a bad idea, right? Talk about him a little bit. Um, his name means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. And this is a name that was used of a man who led the Israelites into the promised land, Joshua. Or it would be pronounced in the Hebrew, Yehoshua. And it's pronounced in the Greek, Iesu. And it's pronounced in the world today in various ways. We say Jesus and some people say Jesus. And, but it's all the same word it is yahweh is salvation he's also called the son of the most high here and the son of god and we've talked about as we're going through the series in john what it means to be the son of god and that jesus kind of defined that on his own that he's unique son of god and that it means of him things that the means of no other that has ever gone before or will ever come and jesus uh had a, an earthly father. His name was Joseph, but it was not his biological father. It was clearly his legal father, as we see in the accounts of the Gospels. But that makes Jesus then clearly the seed of the woman, as described in Genesis 3.15. When mankind first sins and God says, okay, here's the result of the sin, and he pronounces it upon the serpent and upon the woman and upon the man in order, and he goes, these are the curses that will come upon the earth because you have sinned, because you ate of the tree I told you not to eat. One of the things he says is that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the head of that serpent. And when he said it, it creates a linguistic enigma in the Hebrew. Because in the Hebrew and in Hebrew biology, in the way they studied and understood things at those, those times, seed was not of the woman the seed was the contribution biologically of the man and so when he gives the prophecy that the seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the serpent people are like that just doesn't make any sense till now now all of a sudden it begins to make sense and it shows that jesus indeed is both human and divine, the way this is done, this, this conception that is done. Here it is in uh, here it is in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent still, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, so it becomes singular all of a sudden, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this makes sense. Okay, that means Jesus is divine being conceived of the Holy Spirit, but he's also human being conceived in Mary. 
And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which is something we read earlier. It's something you always hear about in the Christmas time because it's so pertinent to the birth of Jesus. It says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now that makes sense concerning the humanity and the divinity of Christ right there. But why? Well, it looks innocuous enough. It just looks like a poetic Hebrew parallelism to say the same thing twice, like the Hebrews often did. But no, it says, to us a child is born. That is, to humanity, a child is brought forth by birth. And yet, a son is given. Because, see, before his birth, before his conception, Jesus already was. He already existed in heaven with the Father the second person of the Godhead. And so he did not need to be born that way. In that way, he was simply given. And so he is both human and divine, a fulfillment of all these things. And as you read these verses on, you see, okay, there are some things here that clearly are in Gabriel's thoughts when he brings this message and certainly spurred these thoughts in the faithful Bible understanding a woman Mary, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. So there's the eternal component here. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. There's the, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant all right there in this, this verse. With justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. It's not the inherent goodness in Mary that will bring this forth. It's not the progress of humanity that will bring this forth. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The pre-existent Christ of God will indeed come and will indeed be born. So here we have Jesus, Yahweh of salvation, Son of the Most High, Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he is the new and better Adam. Because if you think about the context of when his pronouncement was made that the seed of the woman will come crush the head of the serpent, this is in the context of the Adam who had just failed. But there would be another go at it. And if you want to understand what that means, you could go to Romans chapter 5. You can read about it. The cross-reference is in your notes where you can see you know, how death and sin came through the first Adam. But then Jesus is sent as like a second Adam through whom life comes and salvation because he did not sin. He didn't inherit the sins of Adam because he was not born of a man nor the sin nature of mankind, but he's God's great reset. And he can, if he can make it to the cross without sinning, then he could present himself as a substitute for the penalty of the sins of the world. That is death, a substitute for death. And you understand, once death is paid on your behalf, what more do you need? What can this world do to you? Can it put you in poverty? It can, but at least it's not death. Can it put you in slavery? It can, but at least it's not death. See, he, he conquers death, and that makes everything else irrelevant and temporary. He brings peace on earth. And we're not talking about the influence of 
of godly people upon the earth because what we experience today on earth and all the difficulties we have on earth each and every difficulty we suffer and every woe we have and every damage it's done upon the earth and to its inhabitants we can trace back to the influence of ungodly men and ungodly spiritual entities who have all rebelled against God every woe that has ever come whether it's famine or war oppression or slavery or abuse and death and destruction all these things come at the hands of ungodly people and spiritual entities at work in this world. And then Christmas comes. And we start throwing around terms like light and hope and joy and peace. It seems to come and bring with it, to believer and non-believer alike, this idea of a great optimism. But the problem is so many people misplace their optimism. Their optimism is rooted in man finding it within himself to do better. And I don't know about you, fellow Christians, but when you watch the, the t television and you watch the movies and things around the holidays and stuff, is it not just grieve you how they constantly miss the point? How they constantly say, well, this is the meaning of Christmas, that we can all be together and be nice to each other. And the implication is, if we'll just be nice to people all year, then everyone else will be nice to us back. And from time to time and place to place, world powers try to employ that as their foreign relations, their, their foreign relations strategy. We're just going to be nice to everybody. They'll be nice to us. Those are always conquered. They are always eventually defeated and oppressed. Why? Because it doesn't work that way. That the peace on earth, the joy, the goodwill toward men is not going to be found within the hearts of men. The hearts are dark. The hearts are, of, are spiritually dead. The hearts are bent towards sin and selfishness and pride. We will not live happily ever after simply finding it within ourselves, simply legislating the right circumstances, simply bringing the right message to people. No, it has to be done by God. It has to be an internal matter. Those that have changed hearts change the world. Those whom God has taken from death into life will change the world. Those whom have not seen the light of God but have become the light of God are the ones that change the world. Christmas is about discovering Jesus, that Yahweh saves. This Jesus will rule in righteousness and in peace. He will bring it about by renewing the hearts of those who believe, fundamentally changing their nature, adopting them into the family of God, and removing those that will not have him. Did you catch that? When you talk about the positive things that Jesus will do to those that believe, we have to explain what happens to those that don't. They're removed from the presence of all the godly and the presence of God forever and ever. Not completely from the presence of God. For he's present even in hell. And that's what brings us around where we must consider ourselves. And I want to introduce this section by 
speaking of some of the words that are thrown around at Christmas that you see on the ornaments and you see shared very often, peace, joy, and love. First of all, peace with God. And peace with God is this. Will I repent of my sins and trust Jesus Christ for salvation? Because that's the only way that we can have peace with God. And that's the first and most important peace. That means a cessation of hostilities where I am no longer God's enemy, but I am now reconciled to him as his friend. And the route to that is through repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then comes a secondary peace, which is very important, and is the peace many people have in mind when they're saying, you know, peace on earth is an inner peace. Because once we have peace with God, then we have a reconciliation to reality itself, an ease, a comfort, that cannot be taken from us, but something internal and something granted by God and something good and beautiful. And then finally, peace with others. Peace among us. Because when one is born again by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit and their heart is changed from death to life, then all of a sudden they want to obey the commands that God gave us, which is first of all to love Him and then secondarily, to love others, and especially to love those within the body of Christ. You say, that sounds pretty lofty and, and, and pretty far out. I don't know if that's really possible for me. Well, let me remind you of something that was said here. Because what the, the angel tells Mary is so profound she says, you know, well, how will this be? And he says something. At the end of explaining to her how it's going to go, he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And you know what that means to us? That means this peace that can be had with God by the ministration of Jesus Christ in our hearts, by repenting of our sins and trusting in Him, it overcomes every potential barrier. All the sins of your past can be overcome because nothing is impossible with God. All the mistakes you've ever made can be overcome because nothing will be impossible with God. All the disadvantages you have from the time and place and manner of your birth, from your family history, from the circumstances around you, even from your health and your physical nature, all those things can be overcome because verse 37 says, nothing will be impossible with God. The fact that you're a poor nobody from the middle of nowhere living in Nazareth, that you're going to be ridiculed because of having this baby seemingly out of wedlock because you're going to be disadvantaged by your poverty and your position in the world. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to change the world with this Son of the Most High, with this Son of God, because nothing will be impossible with God. And you can have peace with God for that reason. The next word I want to look at here is joy. And like the peace with God, this becomes an internal happiness, something that is a wellspring from within that 
that a spring gives forth water all the time. You don't need to go and fill the spring up. And heaven forbid you ever try to plug a spring. It's going to come up somewhere else. Something's not going to stop it. You don't build your house upon a spring unless you want a wet house. And so joy becomes a spring within us. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God. It doesn't depend upon good circumstances or material goods. It doesn't depend upon the behavior of others. It cannot be extinguished. And it comes from within. And ask yourself this question. What will I do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will I find out what that joy is about? And finally, love. Will I accept the free gift of grace and become part of the solution? Or will I remain part of the problem? See, that's where most of us get it wrong. Before we come to Christ, we think there's neutral parties. We think there's good guys and bad guys. And yeah, a lot of the good guys, they're on God's side. And then the bad guys are clearly against God. Well, I'm kind of in the middle there somewhere. No one's in the middle. The Bible makes it very clear. There are people of light and people of darkness, people of death and people of life, people of the world or of Satan. Same thing. Or people of God. And I want to go back to the greeting, the very beginning of what we looked at today. In verse 24, or in verse 26, he was sent, Gabriel was sent from God. And he comes and he greets her, and look in verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That word favored, as I meant uh, as I suggested earlier means grace it means a gift he shows up and greets her as greetings old gifted one the Lord is with you now look at her reaction she's greatly troubled at the saying trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be in other words why are you showing me up showing up calling me gifted that's like if someone walked through the door and called me beautiful I would have to think about what they meant by that. Like, you know, like, clearly you're not talking aesthetics here. Me with the, vo with the face for radio. That would take me off guard. I would be like, oh, what do you mean by that? And here's Mary. Why? What do you mean by that? Well, she's not anyone particularly special that she's aware of. That's why she's confused at the greeting. And nevertheless, she's called the gifted one. Why is she called the gifted one? Because she's just been given the job to bring forth the Son of God, to raise him, oh, at great cost, but at unparalleled value. And this message comes to us this day. And God says to you and I, greetings, O favored one. Greetings, O favored one. And you say, why are you saying that to me? Why, why am I gifted? You're gifted because the Lord of God, or the word of God has been opened to you this day. That he has sent this message to you. 
that he would have you encouraged to know with God nothing's impossible. With this particular one, he's going to change the world and he's going to change it forever. Beginning in the hearts of people like you and me, the favored, the ones who have been granted grace. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for an indescribable gift of grace that we can have peace with you, that we can have joy like a spring within us, that we can experience the love of God and that we can properly love people. All these things bringing you great glory and bringing all of us and all of your people great blessing. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for your servant Mary. We thank you, Lord, for bringing forth Jesus Christ, for us having a holiday around which we celebrate. We pray, Lord, that we will enter into this holiday season, Lord, stunned at the gift you have given, amazed at it, and ready to tell the story. We thank you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.